Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, Harvest KL. It is a joy to get to come to you this morning and share from God's Word. Uh, My name is Dr. Kyle Essery. This is now the second time that I've had the wonderful opportunity to come to Harvest and worship with you and share from God's Word. I thank you so much for the invitation, and I pray that God really speaks to you through His Word this morning as we look into it. Now, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Judges chapter 2. We're going to look at a passage in Judges chapter 2 and then a short uh, few verses in Judges chapter 3 as well. Now, we live in a world full of celebrities and celebrity children. Just this week, Najib went back on trial. Now, you probably know that Najib was... Malaysia's sixth prime minister. You probably also know that he is the son of Malaysia's second prime minister. Of course, Malaysia's fourth and seventh prime minister, Tun Mahathir, also has a famous son in politics, Mukriz. The opposition leader, Anwar Ibrahim, has a famous daughter in politics. Often, We will analyze and critique the children based on the example of the parents. This is true in the United States as well, where I'm from. Eric, Ivanka, and Donald Jr. are household names. In the recent presidential election, the story of Bo Biden, Joseph Biden's son, played an important role in the campaign. His other son, Hunter Biden, also played a significant role in the campaign. We will analyze children on the basis of their parents. If the parents were beloved and the child brings shame upon them, we'll often wonder what went wrong or what happened. We'll speak of the children rebelling against what we assume was their parents' good upbringing. If, on the other hand, the parent was not well-liked, but the child is well-liked, then we'll speak of the children overcoming the adversity of their upbringing. Honestly, we should evaluate each generation on their own, and we know that each generation will ultimately give an account for itself. Yet, comparing the two generations against each other often brings an interesting perspective to the story. This comparison will often make us ask questions that we wouldn't have otherwise asked. Now, situations certainly change from generation to generation. It's unfair to assume that one generation has the exact same upbringing or circumstance or situation as the previous generation. They certainly have a different situation in life. 
And so in our passage this morning, what is interesting is we are going to see two generations compared against each other. The two generations, as they are compared, they inspire us to ask certain questions. Why did one generation follow the Lord so passionately and another generation completely turn from him? You know, this is a question that we must ask in every generation. Is this generation following the Lord as their ancestors, or are they rejecting the Lord as their ancestors? When the situation changes, we have an opportunity to follow the Lord in faithfulness or to turn away from him. I want us to see this morning in our passage an encouragement to follow the path of faithfulness, but also a warning to avoid the path of disobedience. And finally, I want us to see in this passage from the Bible an example of faithful obedience. So if you haven't already, open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. We will begin with verses 6 through to 15. In these verses, we see a clear distinction and contrast between two generations. Let me read to us the story of this new generation. Verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance, at Timnath, Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they abandoned him and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Now, this brief section includes the story of two generations. We see this clearly stated in verse 10, where the two generations are contrasted against one another. What are the differences between these generations? Well, we see that the elder generation had seen the things that the Lord had done for Israel. 
Now this would have included how God had miraculously provided for them in the wilderness. This would have included the surprising victories over Sihon and Og that we read about. This would have included the Lord parting the waters of the Jordan for them to pass through and enter the promised land. This would have included the miraculous things that the Lord did at Jericho and at other cities during the conquest. And so this passage tells us that Joshua sent the people away and that the people went away to take possession of the land, their inheritance in verse 6. You see, what this acknowledges is that they recognized that the land where they were at was given to them by God. This recognizes God's promises to Abraham that this land had been sworn to them. Now, as they went into this land, it was still filled with other peoples. It was not land that was yet in their possession. Yet in faithfulness, they went into those cities and they inherited the land. And this shows evidence of their faith in the Lord and in his promises. And so verse 7 rightly says that this elder generation served the Lord for the entire lifetime of Joshua. You know, back in Joshua 24, the last chapter of the book of Joshua, as the book comes to a conclusion, Joshua challenges the Israelites. In chapter 24, verse 14, he challenges them to fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Now, this is the passage where in the very next verse, he charges them to serve the Lord and to fear him. And he says, choose this day whom you will serve. And then that famous line where he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so in that passage, the elder generation responded to Joshua with commitment. They said that they wanted to follow the Lord. Joshua even went as far as to warn them. In chapter 24, verse 20, he says, If you abandon the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the elder generation, they committed themselves to the Lord. They said, no, we will only serve the Lord. And they made a covenant at that time to say that they were fully committed to the Lord. And so Joshua 24 verse 31 is almost word for word the same as in our passage, Judges 2 verse 7. When it reads, quote, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel, end quote. A faithful generation. But in Judges 2, we see that this younger generation, by contrast, in verse 10, neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now, I'm sure 
that this younger generation had certainly heard the stories from their faithful parents. They certainly knew of God's miraculously bringing them out of Egypt, of the plagues. They certainly had heard stories of how God spoke to them at Mount Sinai, how God provided for them in the wilderness and brought them into the promised land. But what this means here in verse 10 is not that they didn't have head knowledge about the great things that God had done, but that they weren't committed to him. They didn't follow him with their heart. Whenever times got tough, they didn't stay resolutely committed to the Lord alone. And so verses 11 and 13 tell us that this younger generation worshipped idols. Specifically, they worshipped the gods of the nations. Verses 11 and 13 say that they worshipped Baal. Verse 13 says that they worshipped Ashtoreth. Baal was the storm god who brought the rains. Ashtoreth was the, god, the goddess of fertility and the goddess of war. So what this means is that whenever this younger generation feared drought, instead of turning to the Lord who had provided for them and for their ancestors, they prayed to Baal. It means that as they felt challenged by the nations around them, as they went out to fight against them, they didn't pray to the Lord who had previously fought on their side. They prayed to the Ashtoreths. This is the exact opposite of what the former generation had done. And so verse 12 says that they abandoned the Lord. Now, this seems so ludicrous to us, doesn't it? Like, how could all of these miracles happen with your parents' generation, and here you are, just a few years later, saying, no, I don't want to worship that God. There are all these other gods. I'm going to worship them instead. But we remember that their grandparents' generation had also turned away from the Lord so quickly after the Lord had delivered that generation from Egypt, almost as soon as they were free of Egypt and in the wilderness, they started to complain. They had seen the things that God had done. They had heard the voice of the Lord from Mount Sinai. And they still made a golden calf and worshipped it. How quickly our heart will turn from the Lord. And so this younger generation abandoned the Lord, the exact opposite of their parents, who at the end of Joshua had said, far be it from us to abandon the Lord and serve other gods. And so just as Joshua had warned them in that passage, verses 14 and 15 tell us that the Lord turned against this younger generation in his anger. He allowed their enemies to defeat them and oppress them. And verse 15 ends by saying that they were in great distress. Just as in ancient times, aren't we this way today? 
Doesn't the threat of idolatry still threaten us each and every day? Isn't it true? Wouldn't you say, Harvest KL, that your heart can one day see the great things of God and treasure the great things of God and the very next day be tempted to idolatry? We live in a world where idols are constantly seeking our attention. Maybe for some of you, the idols that draw at your heart are physical idols. Maybe you grew up in a home that had physical idols. Maybe you grew up in a home with a family altar where you offered incense to your ancestors. It's not uncommon that the devil and your sin within you, your flesh, will still be tempted to these idolatries at certain times in your life. But for many of us, our temptations are for the non-physical idols of success, wealth, relationships, power. And so quickly, our heart will be drawn to these things. You know, the prophet Jeremiah said it exactly right in chapter 17, verse 9, where he says that the heart is deceitfully wicked and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I can't. I can't understand my own heart. The theologian John Calvin famously said that the heart is a factory of idols. And so the question remains before us today, if not at every single moment, will I pursue the Lord or will I pursue idols? Will I be like the former generation in this passage and serve the Lord all the days of my life? Or will I be like the younger generation and abandon him? The charge of Joshua still rings in our ears. Choose this day whom you will serve. The text tells us that Israel, after they had been oppressed by their enemies, were in great distress. It says that at the end of verse 15. So how did they respond to such a terrible situation? Unfortunately, they didn't respond in the right way. So open up your Bibles again, and let's look at verses 16 through to 19, where we will see the vicious cycle of unrepentant sin. Let me read that passage to us. Verse 16 says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved Israel out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. 
following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So we see here the vicious cycle of unrepentant sin. We see in verse 17 that they wouldn't listen to the judges, that they still worshiped other gods. They refused to be obedient to the Lord as their parents' generation had done. We see in verse 19 that as soon as the judge died, they not only did evil, but that they did worse evils than the previous generations. They exceeded their ancestors in wickedness. They refused to abandon their evil ways. Did you notice the word that is missing in these verses? The word that is missing is repentance. It's clear in this passage that their cries to the Lord were in response to their suffering. Verse 15 had said that they were in great distress. Verse 18 says that they groaned in response to their affliction. But we see no clear evidence that they are crying out to the Lord in response to their sin. We see no clear evidence that they are crying out to the Lord from a desire to return to him. If anything, the text implies that it's due to their desire for an immediately better situation. They no longer want to be oppressed, and so they'll turn to the Lord for a pragmatic reason right now. They no longer want to suffer. Now, this is not repentance. But at the same time, I don't want us to miss the beauty of what the Lord does here. God still hears their cries. God still responds to their suffering. God still cares. But it's not repentance on their part. In the Old Testament, the Lord regularly called his people to repent. He regularly offered to them his mercy and his grace if they would solely turn to him. This is clearly stated in Deuteronomy 4, verses 29 through to 31. If you remember, Moses is saying this on the plains of Moab to their parents' generation. He says this, If from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you seek him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days, if you will return to the Lord your God and obey him, you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. We see here that the Lord is offering his mercy and his grace if they will only repent. But Israel refused to turn to the Lord. They refused to abandon their evil ways. They received the material blessing, 
Yes, the Lord delivered them from their enemies. He gave them a judge to save them. But as soon as their suffering was ended, they went back to their evil ways. And so we see here a cycle of unrepentant sin. This is throughout the book of Judges. People sin, and their sin combined with the sinful world in which they, le they live leads to suffering and oppression. They realize that they need help, and so they cry out to the Lord when they are suffering as a means to get help. God, in his graciousness, responds to ease their suffering and provide help. But as soon as their suffering is removed, they return to their evil ways. Isn't this so true of how sin works? We all know the saying from John Owen, certainly you've heard it before, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But how many of us take it seriously? Instead, isn't it true that most of us let sin grow and grow in this unrepentant cycle? We try to cover it up, but it always seeks more. What begins as a little lie grows into a series of intricate, complex mistruths and lies. What begins as an occasional escape grows into an uncontrolled addiction. What begins as an innocent conversation grows into an inappropriate relationship. This cycle of unrepentant sin is certainly true for Israel at, the, at that time, and it's so true for so many people today. We live in unrepentant sin. We turn to the Lord because we want help right here and right now. And as soon as he gives it to us, we go right back into our patterns of sin. In response to this cycle of sin, the very first judge offers us a picture of faithfulness. Do you remember the name of the first judge? Let's look at the example of Othniel. So move ahead just a few verses in your Bible to chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through to 11. And we'll see here the example of a faithful judge. Let me read those verses to us, beginning in verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge 
and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Canaz, died. We see in Othniel an obedience that magnifies God, that maximizes God. Now, the setting of the story comes in the first two verses. The salvation of the Lord is central to verses 9 and 10. And we see in verse 11 the peace that results from Othniel's obedience. When we think of the great judges of Israel, we often quickly think of Samson or maybe Gideon. Maybe you think of Ehud because it's such a cool story, or maybe of Barak or Deborah. Maybe you think of Jephthah. Few people think of Othniel. Most, in fact, forget him. But I think in the story of Othniel, we see here someone who maximizes God and whom the text minimizes. Notice in verse 9, the Lord raises him up. Verse 10, the Lord's spirit came upon him. Verse 10 as well, the Lord gave him victory. We see that the Lord is active throughout this entire brief story. But in each of these actions of the Lord, Othniel obeys. The Lord raised up Othniel, and Othniel delivered Israel. The Lord's Spirit came upon Othniel, and Othniel went out to war. The Lord gave Othniel victory, and Othniel overpowered the king. Now, we cannot forget what the text points out to us. It gives us few details of Othniel, but it does tell us one thing. He was the son of Kenaz and the brother of Caleb. Do you remember the story of Caleb in Numbers 13? Whenever Moses sent the spies into the promised land, he chose Caleb to represent the tribe of Judah. Caleb had strong faith. And after the spies came back, he encouraged Israel to rise up and go in and take the land because the Lord was on their side. But in that story, Israel cowered in fear. But in Othniel, Caleb's younger brother, we see another descendant of Judah who evidences complete faith in the Lord. He rises up and does exactly what the Lord wants him to do. And so in these brief verses, we see the story of Othniel, which is a story that maximizes God and minimizes Othniel. So I want us to ask, how can our obedience maximize God and minimize ourselves. If we think through this entire passage that we've looked at today, I believe we see that maximizing God requires absolute allegiance to him. 
That's made clear back in chapter 2, as well as here in chapter 3. We cannot both give our heart to God and to idols. We cannot serve God and serve any other God at the same time. When we fully commit our lives to maximizing God, we will desire more of Him in our lives. We will desire to find our joy, our satisfaction, our fulfillment, our perseverance in Him. And whenever we do, whenever we do, we will find all that we need. And we will be able to rise up and maximize Him and give Him the full praise and glory that He deserves. I believe that the passage this morning also shows us that each generation must maximize God. We cannot exist on past commitment and past victories. We need to maximize God in our lives today. In the first verse of our passage, we saw how the for, in the first verses of our passage, we saw how the former generation passionately pursued the Lord. But this was not sufficient to ensure that their children would also passionately pursue the Lord. In the same way, as individuals, we cannot rely on past passion for God. We need to maximize Him in our lives today. We cannot rest on the great things that God has done in the past and not do the things that God asks of us today. The same is true of a church. God has done wonderful things through Harvest KL. Yet the church cannot rest on what God has done. The church needs to arise and maximize God today. We've seen this morning that when situations change, we have an opportunity to either follow the Lord in faithfulness or turn from the Lord in disobedience. The passage encourages us to follow the path of faithfulness. It warns us against following the path of disobedience. And the passage gives us an example of faithfulness. So how will you respond? Will you, like Israel, fall into a cycle of unrepentant sin? Or will you arise like Othniel? And pursue faithfulness each and every day. Allow the Lord to work fully through you in no matter what setting you are at in life. Now let me conclude today's message with an encouragement. I know that this passage provides strong discouragement against disobedience and at the same time, strong motivation for obedience. But if I'm being honest, even as I was preparing this message this week, I felt inadequate to live up to the calling that God has placed in my life. 
Many of you probably often feel inadequate to do what God is calling you to do each and every day. I often feel overwhelmed by my sin. I sometimes feel that I neither have the strength nor the will to accomplish what God would have me to do. So if this is you this morning, let me encourage you. You are correct. You are a sinner. And on your own, you are unable to overcome that sin. On your own, your strength and your will are not strong enough to do the things that God wants you to do each day. And this is an encouragement to you because it reminds us that we need a deliverer, just like Israel. Each and every day, we need a deliverer. And God has provided one. Some 1,300 over years after Othniel, God's people still needed a deliverer. They not, not only needed freedom from their oppressors, but they needed freedom more importantly, from their bondage to the cycle of unrepentant sin that leads to death. But God in his great love sent Jesus, a descendant of Judah, just like Othniel. Jesus lived a perfect life. He fully did what God wanted him to do. And in his obedience, he went to the cross to die a death that he didn't deserve, but to die a death for the sake of others, those whom he loved. Ultimately, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and provided ultimate deliverance defeating both the powers of sin and the powers of death. Have you trusted in Jesus? If you have not, I pray that today is the day that you do, that you trust in the ultimate deliverer who was given for you. If you have trusted in Jesus, though, and I suspect most of us who are watching this message this morning have trusted in Jesus, then I pray that you will remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, provides everything we need to maximize God every day in our lives. It reminds us that we are sinners and that we need a great Savior. It teaches us to recognize that everything good that we are able to do comes from God alone. Just like Othniel had victory over their oppressors solely through the Lord working in him, so those of us who are in Christ, any victory we have each and every day comes through his spirit at work within us. The gospel teaches us that we are able to move forward each day and remember that we are daily renewed in the gospel of God's grace. Finally, we can remember from our story that Othniel provided salvation for Israel 
But that after 40 years, that salvation ended as Othniel died. The benefits of his work ended as well. But whenever Jesus defeated sin on the cross and rose from the dead to defeat even death itself and never die again, he provided for those of us who trust in him deliverance yesterday, today, and forever. His gospel provides all that is necessary for us to daily live for him, for us to daily maximize God. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the power of your word. I thank you so much for the ways that it has convicted me this week as I have prepared this message. I thank you for the reminder, the reminder that idolatry and sin is constantly going to be a temptation to our hearts but that you have provided deliverance. I thank you for the reminder that we are called each and every day to maximize you and the great things that you have done and are doing, the great things that you have done for those of us who are Christians in Jesus Christ. And oh, I'm so thankful that his deliverance did not end after 40 years but that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that his salvation is given to us for past sins, present sins, future sins, and that we are eternally secure in him. And so today, I pray that we will go out and that we will maximize you each and every day this week, that we will maximize you through the power of the gospel of God's grace at work within us. It is in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.